0: Hi folks, it's Kian here. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the Irish Fortean show that's critical but not cynical. I'm currently up in the Wicklow Mountains. Uh, I'm here for work, doing a little bit of training, but I've managed to sneak away for a little while to get some hiking done. So it's, uh, I think, probably coming to the end of the good weather here, uh, fairly late in summer, probably by the time you are listening to this. the uh, Our week of summer will have passed. Um, nevertheless, I'm trying to make the most of it. This episode um, is a particularly special one. This is a tremendous interview that I have lined up for you folks for you to listen to while I am wandering amongst the pines. Um, actually, a lot of them seem to be dug-dug firs. We have a lot of plantation stuff going on here. Anyway, I, on this episode, I'm talking with uh, Justin Hopper all about his new book, Obsolete Spells. Poems and prose from Victor Newberg and The Vine press so this is a a new book as you're listening to this all going well it should be available from august 15th and with writing poetry prose and some commentary and all from the work of victor newberg and other folks who he published he was a reasonably obscure english uh, publisher and occult writer in the early 20th century so this hits a lot of sweet spots for me i had a tremendously good time talking to justin about this and i really can't thank him enough i think we had a great interview i think you'll enjoy it as well so i'll sit down here for a second and just let you know that as always you can reach out over on twitter where i'm at strange ireland or instagram where i am irish underscore cryptid underscore dude and you can also help out over at uh, buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and uh, as i've been doing recently i'm going to add on extra bits at the end so stick with it until the end of the interview to find out extra connections new things that i've found and interactions that i've had online with people all connected to recent episodes so usually a little bit more information on stuff that i've been working on more recently and in my bag here for when i get to the top is a baby can of big bangin ipa from rye River Brewing, who are a great company and uh, they make a lot of great beer. So I'll enjoy this one when I get up to the top. In the meantime, uh, please enjoy this chat with Justin Hopper, all about his book, Obsolete Spells. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object...
1: Prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing
0: in a body. I think the the brief for this originally was, uh, would anyone like to cover something extremely obscure? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Rather obscure. I mean, it's a uh, it's sort of a sort a, of a, a niche within a niche within a genre. So, um, but you know, that's that's where all the fun stuff lies, right?
0: Yeah. And actually reading this, I I came across numerous connections to stuff I've talked about on the show previously and other mm. things that I think are quite, quite trendy right now, quite popular right now. There's definitely uh, a, a sort of a resurgence of interest in what you might call folk horror, if that's not an overused phrase. Um, and, and just this whole kind of mysterious, eerie England kind of vibe and aesthetic and you know, I, I, there are friends of the show and, and friends of mine who've written for things like the Hellbore magazine. And um, if you know some of the folks making the audio um, projects like uh, a Library of the occult and that sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of yeah. connections to characters and ideas, I think, in this topic.
1: So we're talking about um, a, a new book that I've edited called Obsolete Spells, which is an anthology, I hope, um, thrilling biography of... Um, uh, of the early early, early 20th century uh, poet and occultist and publisher, uh, Victor Newberg, and his 1920s effort, which was a very, very, very small press uh, called Vine Press, based out of his um, retreat uh, in Stenning in what was then quite rural West Sussex. And um, Newberg, of course, is is quite well known for his connections to two major figures of the early 20th Of the 20th century alistair crowley the the great beast and um dylan thomas the uh the great poet i suppose and and crowley was his lover and abuser and thomas was his um i don't know was his discovery and abuser (laughs) Um, yeah Newberg was uh yeah I think of I think of Newberg as a a real sort of type you know he's he's that guy who just who everyone likes and therefore certain people just can't stand him if that makes any sense so um so yeah so he's he's definitely connected to a lot of what you've just mentioned you know he's uh he's definitely an early adopter shall we say of of uh folk horror and um and very, very much a part of the occult revival and the esoteric tradition in England. Um, but also not, also sort of far out from that and much more a part of, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of um, a throwback to a 19th century kind of decadent and romantic literary tradition as well.
0: Yeah, that, that one of my questions actually about his connections to the decadent stuff. So, we're crossing from, you know, cultural things from the 1890s and then all the way through the 10s, 20s and because of his, the length of his career and the different sort of eras that he that he that he was influenced or in, that he was influencing people in, I suppose. And um, I, I was intrigued in the book and in, in your description of Staining, this town where he did a lot of his vine press work um, and and some of the characters it's associated with uh, like Yeats, obviously with his occult connections. And um, Charles Stewart Parnell, I was interested to see, had a, had a connection there as well. My big, big, big interest in Parnell, myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's Stenning's an incredibly strange place. I mean, it's if you go there today still, it feels like an, a, another world at times, you know, and then you go into a trendy coffee shop or something. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it's this sort of amazing place that. You can't imagine has this rich occult history of, um, you know, uh, Newberg lived there, Yates lived there, uh, the great sort of uh, gender defying painter Gluck lived there, not at the same time, these people lived sort of consecutively to one another, but, um, but, it, you know, the first half of the 20th century, some of the most revolutionary figures in, in you know british isles culture were there and parnell was married there and um you know and uh, uh, that just the idea that parnell and yates were both had these experiences in this in this little you know at the time quite small i mean now it's quite bustling actually but at the time it was a it was sort of busy on the market saturday but other than that was a, a bit of a sleepy sort of town and um and, and it sort of punched above its weight still does in some ways actually you know it's 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 very it's a very cultured place um and of course it's got this you know and at the moment it's it's a place that everyone wants to be I wish I could live there but um <laughs> but we'll see but my grandparents are, are lived there which is my connection how oh. I discovered all this stuff is um is stenning is sort of my English home in a way
0: tremendous i I, I lived for a couple of years in rural surrey and then a few years in in essex as well and so oh, yeah. north, north of essex is very you know is less populated and there are these little that's I where suppose, i am now oh, oh well the the um you'll know that the you know you know that that imagery of the the village and and that whole I guess I'm coming out of a, re- a rereading of Ronald Hutton's Triumph for the moon at the moment. And all that stuff is on my mind at this, he's when Newberg is writing, it's at a period of time when, you know, these ideas yeah. about uh, rural versus urban and English history is being rewritten and it's all wrapped up in the occult and the mystical and these strange ideas about pagan survivals. And we're going to get into all that because a lot of it is in the poetry in the book.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and, his his experience was um if, if i can riff on this for a second but his experience was he's you know newberg was born in 1883 to a quite a prominent jewish north london jewish family um uh i use the word prominent i kind of now i wonder if that's the right word they definitely had money um <laughs> i don't know about prominent but um anyway the point is he he came from a at least affluent uh, north london jewish family it was very london You know, this is a, this is a London guy from a London family that traced its Londonness back for, you know, a century or two. And, um, and he, uh, you know, he went through a lot of things that I'm sure we'll discuss briefly, at least, but, um, but in 1919 or 1920, uh, sort of escaped, you know, he was experiencing the shock of, Rurality and the shock of uh, the, the shock of rurality and the, and the shock of, of joining a, a different England that he sort of had read about you know, everything from Newburgh is things he had read about. So, um, so he's experiencing a very similar kind of thing. And and I think the folk horror thing, for example, ties right into that, you know, he comes, he he enters into it the same way so many people do today that, you know, they, they flee to the countryside, you know, he was living that kind of folk horror motif, you know, the the city guy who moves out to this strange country place where no one quite seems to understand him. And he certainly doesn't understand them.
0: Do you think he came to the the countryside already with an interpretation of it as being a place maybe that was already mystical I mean a lot of that stuff was in the zeitgeist wasn't it at the time
1: he he sort of thought of he so he first moved briefly well I say briefly uh, at the time it would have seemed like a long time to hove um you know the um uh, for those who don't know English geography, Hove is, all these places are on the south coast of England, and Hove is the sister to Brighton, which is its sort of bigger, less posh, kind of traditionally, I mean, I don't think that's really the case anymore, but um, but at the time, Hove would have been very twitching curtains, kind of um, <laughs> kind of English, uh, posh, and Brighton would have been its, its slightly more bustling, uh, business-like compatriot he moved to Hove and he even that to him seemed sort of excitingly old in its non londonness if that makes sense (laughs) like he saw that as being this place that had druidic uh echoes and 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 of course I mean you know no one who's lived out in Hove thinks that Um, but he did so I think he was I think he was quite prepared for it you know I think he would have been The way that, you know, the way that uh, sort of Turner and Constable and such fled out to Stonehenge to paint it and ignored, you know, I, I think of Constable because he sort of, you know, he often painted these scenes of like almost mythical rurality when in fact, you know, if you looked. Two feet to the right of where the frame <laughs> stops, there would have been practically a factory, you know. <laughs> um, and that I think is the way Newberg saw some of these places. He he sort of s- found an ability to dismiss the modern world, which is what he really did. You know, the Dylan Thomas biographer um, referred to Newberg as a, a, a 19th century aesthete mank, and it's such a beautiful term. You know, he was he was someone who just couldn't believe that he didn't live in the 1890s which of course he had lived through but he'd been sort of a teenager yeah <laughs> and he you know in some ways he culturally kind of remained there all of his life despite flirtations with with modernism and 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 more um you know he his his way of being modern was was magic and and paganism <laughs>
0: So uh, what are the beginnings of his initiation into more organized forms of occultism? So uh, in
1: in the early, you know, in the sort of 1900s, the first decade of the 20th century, I'm trying to say, um, he uh, slightly later in life, I suppose, in his very early 20s, uh, left to go to school in Cambridge and um and at Cambridge he studied liter. you know he read literature he um he became a member of everything that he could get his hands on that had some kind of literary or alternative um uh, uh resonance for him you know Alistair Crowley who you know I, I certainly don't always think he's a great writer sometimes was actually a great writer and one of the things and unfortunately I'm not going to be able to quote it is as beautifully as he put it, um, but one of the things he, one of the great things he wrote, I thought, was about Newberg. Later, much later, after they, years after they went their separate ways, Crowley wrote that Newberg um, uh, had been raised to sort of with the with the with an idea of horror around the concept of living a normal life, and and I think you know he was from quite an orthodox family. Um, and he knew from a very early age you know he knew from his teenage years that he wanted nothing to he wanted his life to be nothing like that he came from quite a strange uh you know his parents were um uh, his mother was a member of this family his father was uh i believe and there's there's some dispute about this but i believe quite a uh, physically abusive husband but he certainly was gone by the by the time, essentially by the time Victor was born or a few months old, um, they quite possibly never were in the same room as one another. Um, So he was the only child to a single mother who was nonetheless part of this huge uh, Orthodox, very from kind of religious family. And he knew from his teenage years, that did not work for him at all. Um, and he became initiated into, he literally, uh, according to one story, was walking down the street and found, uh, and discovered the, officer, the offices of the Freethinker publication, uh, one of the, you know, sort of humanist, uh, um, what am I trying to say, uh, uh, anti-religious um, publications, and instantly knew that was for him, and, you know, began reading everything he could get his hands on about uh, agnosticism and and um and writing for these publications as uh, sort of in his late teens early 20s um then he went to cambridge and there he discovered all kinds of more f- of other free thought organizations like-minded people in in droves and joined something called the pan society which would have been a sort of Uh, I think largely literary, but not exclusively literary group um, that brought in sort of alternative ways of thinking, uh, inspired by the great God Pan and, um, and, uh, and through these combinations through some strange coincidences. uh, Alistair Crowley, the, um, the, you know, certainly the great occultist of the 20th century. found out about him and was always was a cambridge grad himself um as an alum was sort of allowed to just stroll into the buildings and was always on the lookout for um for acolytes particularly <laughs> if they came from money um and uh, and by all accounts literally walked into newberg's room one day and said i'm alistair crowley and newberg was smitten for good um and uh, you know, and and became his disciple. and And Crowley would have said, possibly the the most,, uh, the most naturally gifted one that he ever knew. In fact, Crowley did say that uh, Newberg was the most naturally gifted psychic uh, that he had met in all of his times, and was, by some accounts, was slightly enraged by the fact that Newberg was just so much better at magic than him.
0: <laughs> uh, that's a pretty incredible thing for him to have said. He, he you know, as a an inveterate self-promoter and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty astonishing, I've never forgotten them. <laughs> Years later, D- Dennis Wheatley always said about occultists in general, but I think he meant Crowley in, in particular. That there was nothing really mysterious about them, and they were most likely—if you met them—they'd be most likely to try and borrow a fiver off you, uh, in in reference to Crowley,
1: (laughs) or a lend of some drugs.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, Yeah. that sounds just about right. (laughs) Having having um, just—I haven't read it yet, but I've I've just heard Phil Baker speak about his new book, (sighs) um, uh, "City of the Beast," about Crowley's London and uh and that just gives such a such a <laughs> anti-romantic vision yes. of of the great beast.
0: <laughs> I think he wrote the Dennis, yeah, he wrote the witty biography that I used. I think so, he did. Yeah. Um so so what was tell us a bit about their work together and the strange things so they we went So
1: um, Yeah, they they did all kinds of strange things and um and and of course this is all precursor to to what uh, what I'm particularly fascinated by, which is which is Newberg's literary years, but um, so and I say that because there are people out there who know this stuff way better than I do. These you know these Crowley Newberg adventures, um, but I will try and encapsulate very quickly. They um, so that I mean most importantly, and the, the, chronologically, this is a few years in, but most importantly, they they together. I mean, Crowley certainly was the one who invented these concepts and these practices but it was with newberg that he that he really had sort of invented and and perhaps in his mind began to perfect these ideas around sex magic so um i think crowley and newberg were probably became lovers within i i think months of meeting um newberg it seems very unlikely had had any uh, sort of homosexual encounters before that. It's entirely possible he didn't have any heterosexual encounters before that either. Um, but um, and and I believe and Newberg's granddaughter uh, Caroline Newberg believes as well that he never had another uh, homosexual partner after his Crowley years. Um, but uh, but during that time he was you know, he was smitten with these ideas of perhaps not the promiscuity uh, in the same way, but, but the, um, the openness, you know, he was very, very open to trying anything. And uh, that's something that Crowley absolutely took advantage of. Um, so they, you know, they had adventures in North Africa um, where, uh, you know, Crowley sort of turned him into a bit of a devil um in appearance and and dragged him around these villages uh uh, touting him as touting newberg as proof of crowley's sort of great powers to have tamed this devil um and they had you know they had ritualistic sex on outdoors in in north africa um before that he did uh, he went to Bolskin house uh, Crowley's um, escape in Scotland and and did his magical training there, which involved some fairly, uh, fairly tough love <laughs> kind of activities, sleeping on nettles and brambles outside naked at, through the night and that sort of thing. And um and it ended up in this very famous uh, um, magical activity called the Paris Working, which it is very likely that you know more about the Paris <laughs> Working than I. Um, uh, lots of people, certainly loads of people, do. But essentially, was they locked themselves in a Parisian apartment for uh, ten days or so, and. Um, and consumed drugs and, and had sex, but all with a ritualistic bent, all towards sort of these, these uh, uh, movements towards. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but to me, a lot of what Crowley's doing is about power. And it's, it's one of the things that I think is a really interesting split that occurs in Newberg's personality is that he participates throughout those seven years between around 1907 and 1914 um maybe before that six to 13 somewhere on there anyway for about seven years he's with Crowley and in that time he's participating in these magical actions and workings and sex rituals and performances and all of these events that in one way or another have implications towards power and after that he's sent off to the first world war um he doesn't end up in combat because he's such an absolute uh um i I don't know if i can swear on your podcast but he's such a rubbish soldier (laughs) um and it's so obvious to everyone that they basically make him do things like he lights the fires for the officers in the evening and things <laughs> like that um and another aspect of that is that there's a man named hater preston who is his lifelong friend um and hater preston turns out to be you know he's known this man for years he gets to the front he gets to france and hater preston is his sergeant and and knows that newberg who uh, um Gosh, it's important that I mention this, and I didn't. It's important to know that Victor Newberg is is small and frail and suffers from chronic illness from throughout his entire life. Um, he's very frequently described as having a, a head that's too big for his body. He's also described as having a face that's too big for his head. Um, he's sort of got lots of face, and yet if you look at photos of him, I describe him this way: he's got you know he's he's small of frame, large of head, and Big of hair and all that sort of thing and yet if you look at a photo of him from sort of 1920 he's he's just simply attractive and And you can't really put your finger on why, because each part doesn't quite work for this body. And yet when you put it all together, you've got a guy that is sort of weirdly handsome and that you (laughs) certainly want to be friends with. And that's a really important thing about Newberg, because it genuinely saves his life multiple times that people want him, want to take care of him. Um but he gets sent off to the, to the front. Uh, he never sees combat. He works behind the scenes in quite a dreadful place where the bodies are being shipped back through essentially. And, um, and he's traumatized. And, uh, and when he gets back to England, it seems to me that from that moment forward, he gives up on the idea of power completely. And and I think that's this key thing that's happened for him, and it makes the sort of countercultural community that I see Vine Press and his later efforts as being possible. Because he gives up on the idea that he is at the heart of these things, even though he very much is. Um, he makes it into a situation with his press and with his communities that is about using whatever he has to give platform, as we would say today, to, to these others who wouldn't publish otherwise to a great extent, who wouldn't, who don't have very much confidence. Many of the poets he writes don't want to be published, to be perfectly frank. <laughs> um, not because they don't want their poetry published, but because it's just not really the way they see themselves. Hmm. and um, and 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 he's sort of given up that idea of of power and starts using, I would say, using those magical abilities, you know, if we think of magic in a really broad spectrum of of things that involves just transforming the world around you, he he starts using magic uh, through poetry, through publishing, through letters, through words. Um, He starts using that as a magical ritual that distributes power to those around him
0: do you think he was uh, do you imagine him as being a big personality i think um that he was incredibly
1: charismatic actually uh i was uh, so i've uh, one of the incredible things about this project this book project obsolete spells with strange attractor press out now um is uh, <laughs> has been um becoming friends with some of the descendants of the of the people who were involved in vine press so um And one of those uh, who unfortunately I met, actually finally, finally met after literally years of looking for her um, after the book had gone to print, but is Newberg's granddaughter. And she is, um, she's amazing and absolutely loves her grandfather, loves to talk about him, has everything. And she and I were going through two full photo albums of photographs of him well, from his life, from the 1920s. And, um, and whenever there's him and other people, he is, and I mean this literally, always at the center. They, they surround him and it just gives you this feeling of someone that everyone sees as being, even, even when he's not sort of the main character, he's the anchor. And, um, and it's a really interesting role for him to play because like I said, he's so interested in giving power away, giving money away, <laughs> um, having nothing, it's just incredible. You know, he's a real sort of modern artist in a lot of the, in those kinds of ways. But, um, but he's definitely a charismatic person. I mean, I think even Crowley who's obviously for better or for worse charismatic, um, even Crowley seems from quite early on to be sort of smitten with him in those kinds of ways and other ways as well Um, and yeah I think he I think that's who he was and I think that's one of the magical powers so to speak that he you know one of the one of the sort of rituals that he wanted to utilize was a was a ritual that created community
0: you're right in the book that he, he never met a loser he didn't <laughs> he, he didn't trust, or he never met a loser who he you didn't want to support. <laughs> he never
1: met a loser he didn't believe in. Yes. He never <laughs> met anyone he didn't believe in, really. Um, much to his uh, sort of tragedy, but um, but yeah, and so so he so he comes back from the war, sort of between Crowley and the war, and another event that actually is probably important to briefly mention is that um, there was a woman named Jean Hayes with whom he was infatuated if not truly in love um and she was a dancer and a uh and an actress and she went by the name Iona de Forest because these people were absolutely hipsters it's really amazing to see how similar um how similar it is to sort of the past 15 20 years of of uh, hipster culture but um uh but Iona de Forest was his muse, his lover, um, and cruelly hated it um, to the point where she married someone else. Uh, it seems quite likely to try and get herself away from Newburgh, and it didn't work. They continued to see one another. Um, it is very possible, a, a couple different sources believe that she became pregnant. Uh, with Newberg and um, and at the age of I, I believe she was 21 20 or 21 um, she shot herself through the heart um, and it's a very fascinating incident because there's no doubt as to who did it she pulled the trigger she left notes she wrote letters she planned it, it, it you know, planned it down to the last detail. However, she she told her husband that he had killed her, essentially. Newberg believed that Newberg had killed her, had caused her death uh, because of events the nights before. And Crowley later wrote that he had cast a spell that caused her to shoot herself. <sighs> so you have three men who essentially... We believe went to their graves, believing that they had caused this woman's death. Wow. Um, and it 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 was one of the things that really shattered Newberg's psyche. Between that, Crowley, the war, he um, he kind of lost it. And his aunt um handed him the keys to this cottage in Stenning in West Sussex, at the foot of Schenktonby Ring in the South Downs. And he essentially escaped to there. Um, uh, he, she also um, financed him uh, in the purchase of a hand-cranked printing press, um, and it seems likely that there was some kind of deal going on there where he was supposed to use it as a business, and uh, and he did. You know, he printed flyers for businesses, he printed all kinds of stuff for the community. He he did all that kind of work, and he printed books, uh, sort of. Almost as a vanity press at times, but he also broke the rules by publishing his own public his own poetry and the anonymous kind of you know Scots ballads and uh, folk tales and folk poetry that he adored. He printed all of that stuff anonymously, including his own work. Which he, there's no Vine Press book with Victor Newberg's name on on it, but um, but he you know. Three or four volumes of it is almost exclusively his work. So that so he ended up in this in this place in Stenning as a kind of psychological retreat, a kind of escape. Um, and that's where he began this effort towards getting in touch with nature and giving away everything he had in a way. So, yeah, so Newberg is actually um uh, you know, obviously he's the central character in this story, but um but the thing he did with Vine Press was essentially set up uh you know, there, there was quite a trend at the time towards small, uh, beautifully produced, woodcut illustrated, uh, limited edition books. And um, and he was quite taken with that sort of thing. I'm sure that he would have been very taken, for example, with what Eric Gill was doing in Ditchling. The, the good side of what Eric Gill was doing in Ditchling, not the crazy, crazy, crazy side. But, um, uh, and... Um, And, 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 you know, and there were, there were loads of them all over, but, but Ditchling, you know, Eric Gill and his uh, press was only, I mean, it's maybe a half hour drive or something from, if you know what I mean, from Stenning. So he would have seen himself as part of a a community, sort of a, you know, a a trend almost an event that was happening in terms of public publishing. So he got this, this press and it has a, um, uh, uh, it's a, Small hand crank printing press with a very distinctive typeface. You really know a Vine Press press book when you see it, um, because of uh, you know because of the way some of the letters are interconnected and and missized and all that sort of thing. <laughs> it's it's lovely though, um, and you can tell also in the the first books, uh, Lily Gay, um, assuming I'm not forgetting everything (laughs) it's been a while since i did this yeah did this book um yeah lily gay the first book you can see in in the original copies of that um you know just mistakes you know just things that obviously he wasn't quite used to what he was doing yet um and that's great (laughs) but um but yeah so he what he wanted to do at first was certainly was was just test out what he was doing and he started printing sort of manifesto type broadsheets that kind of thing um and uh, and he was certainly doing um like i said sort of what we would today think of as leaflets for for small businesses and uh, i would imagine things everything from sort of stationary upwards um but uh, his main interest was in making these books of these woodcut-illustrated books of poetry, um, and he started by using um, anonymous texts. So he was, you know, uh, his his love for poetry after uh, years away from it. He he wrote a, he wrote two books in his early days. Um, he wrote a book called A Green Garland in uh, around 1906 or seven, I think. And, um, and then a couple of years later, uh, Crowley actually published his book, um, uh, uh, The Triumph of Pan. And, um, and that's, you know, to a lot of people, to a lot of the occult side of, of, of Newberg's life, that's the primary text, right? That's the real thing. That's when he was writing of and about the magical life um, from a real sort of place of knowledge. And um, after that, he wrote uh, a couple of poems. He, he wrote one very long poem, which was never published until um, maybe 10 years ago, I think, by a, um, by a small press. Uh, but, um, but in his lifetime, certainly it was never published. And then he seems to have stopped writing completely um, from about the onset of the First World War, around then until, um, until Vine Press, 1920. And, um, and the first thing he published were all these anonymous texts, these ballads with a few little bits of his snuck in there in the form of sort of uh, an introduction and pro, a, a prologue, a dedication, that kind of thing, a, a epilogue. Um, and, uh, um, and, and it really sort of got him excited, you know, by most accounts, he became excited about poetry again, the way he had been, the way it had been central to his entire life. Um, and and at that point, he started, uh, you know, he, he published um, a few other small bits, and then a book, uh, uh, two books of his own work published anonymously, a book called Swift Wings, which is... Uh, Uh, a sort of a a love song to his new home in Sussex. Um, And to me, to the other side of Newburgh, that's the primary text. That's this book where he's absolutely like a teenager infatuated with poetry, infatuated with the landscape and writing about it the way, uh, you know, in some cases the way psychogeographers and and sort of modern landscape writers would Um, because he's looking at it and seeing something that the people standing next to him can't see you know he's he's experiencing it in an entirely personal way that goes back much farther you know he sees druids he sees he sees the sort of celtic landscape in a way um and And that, you know, goes to his sort of obsession with the classics and obsession with paganism. And and he begins to sort of formulate uh, or buy into, I should say, uh, that kind of English uh, landscape paganism that, like you said, is is so relevant to what people are interested in today. and uh, and he also begins revisiting magic and revisiting his sort of occult roots, what at that point would have already been roots, um, <laughs> in the occult, um, and uh, and and so he publishes these two these two books, Swift Wings and a book called Songs of the Groves. That's kind of the flip side to swift wings because it's much more about magic uh it's much more about paganism and it, there's still landscape in it but if the first one is about a pagan landscape this is about paganism in the landscape if you know what i mean um and and that begins to attract other writers
0: <laughs> i i was picking through the poems and i like i i see themes um that are, are things i've covered and things that you know a strike a, a chi- they chime in with my reading of you know occult thinking and and other fringe thinking from the 10s and 20s and it's like i notice references to you know ancient rites uh, a belief in um, a prehistoric race of small beings living in britain which I know as the Turanian Dwarf Theory, and we have more episodes on that coming soon. And he talks, as you say, he talks about druids, and he has he has that very particular version of the druids where they're not nice, friendly New Age people who want to heal you. They are bloodthirsty, sacrificing people on altars, kind of druids. And he talks about mother gods, which is all you know, all stuff that later fed into neo neo paganism. And he talks about Pan a lot. What what were his beliefs? And what was his conception of the occult? What did that mean to him? What did he actually believe in? I would feel funny,
1: actually, um, saying what Newberg's beliefs were. Uh, I think that he, I think that, I think that he believed very, very strongly in people. And I think that he believed very strongly in forces in natural forces that were outside the realm of mankind and I think it would be really hard to to sort of nail him down to anything more specific than that actually I mean I think you probably could uh in lots of different ways you know you could probably make arguments for his sort of Classical pagan roots and his neo-pagan kind of English uh, druidic uh, um, leanings, and you could probably uh, say that there's there's a um, that there's a, a streak of the entire sort of Western esoteric tradition going on throughout what he what he believes. But I think that actually deep down, what he believed in was. You know, when Crowley met him, his obsession was Esperanto. Uh, In the most religious way, he believed in the universal language. And I kind of think that in a way that never left. You know, he really believed in poetry and language and communion with other human beings. You know, he's like I said before, he's this he's this figure who comes from a big, very, very closed close and closed family who also doesn't feel like he belongs at all he didn't have a father and you know he was an only child in a and and he didn't buy into the uh, the religious tradition that they uh lived from and lived within and um and i think that what he you know I, i maybe am projecting here but to me all of this stuff is a MacGuffin in a way it's, and magic to him is his, what he believed in was magic. And what magic was, was the ability to create community. And, and he saw that as, I think he saw that as a genuinely magical act. And, and he used everything at his disposal to better his ability to conduct that right. Um, and he saw he saw these kinds of, you know, he didn't want to live in any kind of, he didn't, to some extent, he didn't believe, by the end of his life, certainly, he didn't believe in marriage, he didn't believe in, um, he, he absolutely didn't believe that men and women should be treated differently. Um, he published just about as many women as men. Uh, he, you know, at a time when perhaps that wasn't quite as as uh, um, frequent and occurrence, he didn't believe that there was anything wrong with people. <laughs> you know, he didn't think there was something wrong with being, uh, with having a different sexuality or, you know, he, he, he used mixed pronouns, you know, he used they, not she, hmm. and or he um, a lot of the time uh, or his own versions of those things. And, and I, I, I think that he, really genuinely comes from a place where he believed language was magic and magic was this thing that brought people together as opposed to granting one power over other people and that i think was his that i think was his beliefs um and that's probably not a very good answer for no it's wonderful that's there's a lot of people who will be able to very deeply understand what he's talking about in these poems about the occult and what what all of these references are and we'll be able to pick out something else but i think it's you'd be very hard pressed to say this not that you know i actually yeah. think of him um i don't i don't like to bring this guy up much anymore because he's proved himself to be what a lot of people always said he was but um uh but i i always, i think of newberg Newberg's beliefs as being very Van Morrison, actually, because (laughs) Van Morrison, of course, the 70s, 80s, 90s uh, Northern Irish singer songwriter believed absolutely everything all at once (laughs) and um and he comes from a sort of similar background you know he's a he also was an only child to a protestant family to a sort of orthodox not that orthodox but still a religious family who didn't really buy into that and um and I think Newberg sort of had this streak, but, you know, but Newberg loved everybody. <laughs> ben Morrison can't stand anybody. Yeah, no, fam- but, famously, <laughs> famous termogen. But but I think that, um, but I think they, they, you know, Newberg had this incredible understanding, you know, he read everything and he had this incredible understanding. He could see the connections between all of these things. He could see the connections between classical Greek pa- paganism and, and early twentieth century, you know, golden dawn. I mean, those uh, those connections are obvious. I've, I've sort of thrown out the wrong things there, but um, but he, you know, he he saw himself as part of a grand tradition. Let's put it that way. He saw himself as a part of a as not as not just party to, but perhaps an heir to a grand tradition tradition of joining together all of these dots. And, and that's the sort of hermetic belief that he had. You know, that's what he believed in. He believed in Pan.
0: In every sense of the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can, I can be a bit literal-minded with this stuff because I spend so much time researching, you know, the history of unusual beliefs, let's say. And so I'll spend yeah. ages reading about, you know, how did the academic idea of, you know, pagan survivals, where did that come from? When was it... Yeah. Uh, commonly believed by academics when was it thrown out and so I, I i sometimes miss the the wood for the trees i sometimes miss out on the fact that it's this is not always a literal minded thing and and sometimes these ideas like you say he's using these ideas for a more personal or a more spiritual purpose he doesn't necessarily have a theory that he subscribed to about the history of england or the prehistory of england you know these are this is poetic in in, in both senses of the term I I would
1: say so. That is not to say that he didn't genuinely believe some of those things. I just don't think that there's also, I don't think there's quite too, quite that many things that he didn't believe, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. and, I, and I think that, you know, when he moved to Stenning, so Stenning is, it, uh, as I keep saying, it's at the foot of the South Downs. Uh, and again, for anyone who's not familiar with the geography that's uh, uh, a a sort of rift of hills that runs in an almost straight line across parallel to the southern coast of England and uh, um, one of the sort of crowning hills of that is uh, which was also used as an iron age hill fort and then a roman temple and before any of that possibly uh, had already been sort of a religious center for centuries it's called shankton ring and that is you know Stenning is basically below Timbu ring and when you go to shangtenbury ring you believe all those things too <laughs> it is genuinely i mean even even some of the the more skeptical uh, among us will will say yeah i don't believe in x y or z but when I went to shankton I have to say, I was quite unsure about that. Um, and I think that, you know, he wrote several poems that sort of uh, directly or indirectly reference Schenckdenberry in and its history as a, an alleged Druidic altar site. And, and, um, and I think that he arrived in the spot and began to see all of the things that he had connected to other cultures as being something that existed in his backyard as well um so he linked those things up brought them into his in his uh you know heterogeneous um belief system and uh and and added it was a very additive lifestyle um so uh so yeah in terms of what he believes that you know I, uh, not to not to dissuade anyone from imagining his um, his occult roots. Uh, I, I think he I think he genuinely believed in in the counterculture.
0: Hmm. Who were some of the other folks he was getting published also?
1: So um, yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> before I get too sucked into Newberg, although we have, haven't we? Too um, late. <laughs> deep. They're, There are quite a few, but I'm going to mention a a couple in particular. Um, There's a woman named Vera Pregnell, um, who uh, was the founder. I mentioned Schenckdenberry Ring. If you walked from Stenning over Schenckdenberry Ring or around it and to the other side, um, you would have ended up in what at that time in the 1920s was a... Uh, a fairly bustling, actually, uh, I was about to say small, and it was, but, um, but it had more people than it could cope with or, or had space for uh, a, a small utopian community called the sanctuary. Um, and the sanctuary was founded by a woman named Vera Pregnel, um who, uh, who had been raised by, uh, she, she came from a, a, a family that was very rapidly climbing the socioeconomic ladder. And, um, and she began to believe in a kind of Christianity, a very sort of charity driven Christianity. Um, and a very sort of, uh, I guess you'd say, a sort of anarcho-Christian worldview. Um, and she took her not inconsiderable what's what am i trying to say <laughs> took her considerable fortune um that she inherited and um and used it to buy this plot of land in sussex and found a a, a small community there for people who needed to escape from the world um, and it attracted you know she she believed that essentially you know she wrote uh, again i'm not going to say it as well as she did Um, But I'm not going to find it very quickly either. So (laughs) she believed that, um, that Christ came in many disguises, essentially. Um, And you shouldn't turn anyone away because that might be him. And so the sanctuary wound up being this insane place where, you know, one of the tabloid newspapers actually decried it as radically immoral. Because, for example, there were black and white people living together. There were um, anarchists and communists, and you know there were uh, there there were you know. Uh, old aging anarchist sort of forebears and and young people learning from them and there were people you know unmarried couples living in sin and all of these kind of mad things that you can't even conceive of people <laughs> different religions mixing of different people from all over the world um and uh you know and it was it was Seen by people at the time as, you know, uh, Arthur Arthur Calder Marshall uh, wrote of it as being this place um, where uh, uh, wrote of it as, as this place that genuinely was sanctuary for people who'd been beaten up by life, essentially, and um, and a very different place, and the place that Newberg felt most at home, more so even than his home. Uh, at that point in by the sort of 1923-24 he's married Newberg is married Um, he has a a child Um, the marriage did not go very well at that time and he began escaping to the sanctuary and he got Vera Pragnell to write the story of the sanctuary so she became part of the Vine Press family by way of publishing this book and the sanctuary was also a place where he likely met a lot of these other writers there was a man named who went by the the sort of nom de plume of rolled white um whose name was hd jennings white um and he was a uh he had been a um a conscientious objector during the first world war which of course is incredibly uh, uh controversial at that time i mean you couldn't you know, you couldn't apply for jobs if you'd been a conscientious objector. You couldn't, you know, there were lots of places that you you couldn't buy or rent a accommodation if you'd been a, a CO. Um, so it was, a, you know, it was not something you did lightly. Um, and but he was deeply, deeply uh, pacifist, and believed that he could not en- endure being a part of the war um, went off to, uh, was put in jail for it, was sent to labor camps for it. And during his time in prison and in labor camps, wrote these poems, um, very, very dark, terrifying poems of of a very dark and terrifying time, particularly for someone like himself. Um, and, uh, and then kept them and Newberg met him and took these poems on board and and published them as these rolled white books that displayed a very, you know, as opposed to what we're saying about Newberg, don't ask me to explain it, but but rolled white, H.D. Jennings White, had an incredibly uh, uh, meticulous understanding of the philosophical understanding of the world, went on to write uh, immense amounts, uh, immense quantities about, Of of philosophical writings, but at the time was a psychologist, and uh, in nineteen teens, nineteen twenty or not not teens in the nineteen twenties and thirties was a psychologist, and um, wrote some again. You know, he he believed that people were basically okay, uh, no matter what they do, and he wrote things that were incredibly controversial and got him thrown out of various societies such as that women should enjoy sex (laughs) and that uh homosexuality was okay and that masturbation didn't send you to hell um those sorts of things essentially just about ended his career (laughs) so he wrote two volumes of his poetry for vine press and, and another of the people that we've managed to you know, locate and become quite good friends with, I, I like to think is his daughter, because H.D. Jennings White lived an incredibly long life, um, and did not have children till his fifties. So his children, his daughters are both alive today, despite the fact that he was, uh, born in the 19th century. Um, so uh so that's another direct link we've been able to have to understand his writing a bit more and actually get for the first time uh you know um documentation of uh from his notes of his annotations of when and where these poems were wrote during his prison and labor camp time which is really i hope sort of lends something to understanding these incredibly little known volumes (laughs) it's it's important to point out actually that You know, 550 copies would have been one of the biggest Vine Press runs. And these things have, with a few exceptions of Newberg's own poetry, have never been reprinted. So the chances of anyone today having read Roald, Roald White's poetry or Vera Brignell's Story of the Sanctuary are incredibly thin. <laughs> um, very little chance uh, that you will have encountered these things before, but doesn't that make it more exciting, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Justin, taking things towards um, an end of sorts, um, it, talk to us about what happened to him towards the end of his life and, and after his death and you know, what was his place in in the world of poetry, in the world of the occult after this? Was he remembered? If not, how come? What happened? So
1: Newberg, um, Newberg published these volumes through Vine Press. Uh, and then at the end of the 20s, when his he was spending more and more time at the sanctuary, less and less time at home, his marriage was really faltering. Um, his wife was almost certainly having an affair from uh, from quite early on in their life together, um, which he thought was fine <laughs> because that's the way he was. <laughs> um, and, uh, but he met someone, he met, uh, a, a a quite interesting and odd character who I refer to as Runia McLeod, which is just one of her many names. Um, she's also known as Sheila McLeod as Rooney Tharp as Sheila Tharp. Um, and uh, none of which are her birth name, um, but she was uh, she was the sort of estranged wife of a uh, quite good, quite established uh, landscape and portrait painter named Charles Tharp, um, who had been shell shocked essentially during the First World War, and was very, very troubled, very. Um, an alcoholic uh he was he was essentially um just dis- not functioning and um as a as a as a family man that is as a as a father i think he was slightly better and as a um as a painter he he was still relatively successful but they had essentially no relationship it seems um she took up an affair with newberg so she was married to charles tharp he was married uh, uh, to um, uh, Kathleen Newberg, formerly ca- Kathleen Goddard. and But Rooney MacLeod, this woman, was a real, she wanted to be a filmmaker. She was involved in film. She wanted to be a playwright. She wanted to be lots of things. And um, the times didn't allow for very much of that. She was old enough that she had been a suffragette in the early 20th century, uh, the early days of the 20th century. She was a staunch hardcore feminist at a time when that didn't go over particularly well, even legally. Um, So uh, the two of them found kindred spirits in one another. They joined forces and began living what Rooney MacLeod uh, referred to as the modern experiment. And eventually um, after some brief period of time, splitting between Stenning and London. He moved in with her in London in a new house. And there um, he got a job through his old friend Hayter Preston at a, a, at a publication called The Sunday Referee, which is a, obviously a weekly newspaper. Um, and he ran a thing called Poet's Corner, which was a small po- weekly poetry piece in that which he transformed into a bit of a community where people would write send in poems he would publish them and then others would comment on them and it's through that that he got his sort of biggest claim to fame actually is that um this person no one had heard of named dylan thomas sent him poems uh newberg and his colleagues actually didn't believe at first that this was a person they didn't immediately realize that this wasn't just better than the other stuff that was being published it was some of the best poetry being written in that century (laughs) literally um and newberg gave him uh the the poet's corners Sunday referee prize, which was a publication of a book. So Newberg got Dylan Thomas's first book of poetry published, which then got out into the world, led to this, that, and the other, and he became famous poet. Now that didn't stop Dylan Thomas from saying absolutely <laughs> dreadful things about what a, what a, a nutcase um, Victor Newberg was. But um, so he continued his publishing work in that way. Uh, he got he lost that job because Poets Corner was shut down and he began publishing a poetry and uh, um, art criticism and political weekly magazine called Comment uh, that they got printed through the Communist Party. Um, and it included uh, by this time, Newberg was a, a, an avowed anarchist, um, refused to join the Communist Party, which eventually ended comments run to some extent because they got into fights over things and he couldn't get it printed but um but the important thing is that um through comment magazine he you know he continued to bring in other writers to publish people like rolled white uh to publish um art criticism that talked about the british surrealists uh very early on in the sort of surreal in Britain's participation in the surrealist movement um, talked about film in a in a very sort of art uh, art criticism kind of angle so he really continued that um, but he became very very ill and by 1937 everything had to shut down just to t- take care of Victor and the last couple of years of his life he died at 50 what am I trying to say 57 um in 1940 uh the la- but he was dead to the world for several years before that he maintained some of that occult status within his friendship circle through people like Ethel Archer which was he published uh through Vine Press and who was another uh Crowley Acolyte, and they knew each other from those days. Uh, similarly, Austin Osmond Spare, uh, the, great, um, the, the great artist and worker of magic of, uh, of that era, um, he was still in direct contact with Spare in the last days of his life, and in, in reason to potentially believe they might have been considering a project together. Um, but instead he handed it off to someone else as Victor often did. But, um, uh, but yeah, he died relatively, relatively young and, uh, and, and his legacy, other than those two men that he is forever linked with, kind of died with him. Uh, you know, his poetry was largely forgotten outside of occult circles. Um, His vine press work was largely forgotten outside of some book collectors and, uh, and again, some occult circles, Um, but really sort of as a a link between the decadents and the modernists kind of forgotten um, in that way and, and the role that I think, I don't know I I kind of like to believe that he would have relished that sort of (laughs) position. And I think he would have relished uh, being forgotten in some ways. (laughs) But I hope that he would have loved more than anything being recalled yet again, a hundred years later.
0: (laughs) So the book is Obsolete Spells, Poems and Prose from Victor Newberg and the Vine Press. That is through Strange uh, Tractor Press. And Justin, where can people find the book online? Where can they find yourself and your own work online? You can find it according to this. You can find it Uh,
1: most, almost exclusively through Strange Attractors website, um, and their, their distribution network, but it should be in wider distribution in uh, late August of 2022, um, and available in all good bookshops uh, around, certainly around the UK and the US, and I believe Europe as well, but I actually, that's probably something I ought to know. Um, but yeah, you can find that. Uh, it's got a biographical essay, uh, 50 or 60 pages at the beginning, sections from almost every Vine Press book um, included in the anthology section and a an essay about each book as well, as well as a, a, a foreword by Richard McNaff, uh, the author, and an afterword by Roald White's daughter, Margaret Jennings White.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think listeners um will really enjoy this and as well if you've been listening for a while and you know some of the stuff I like to cover a lot of those themes as we've mentioned are in his work and they're covered really really nicely in this book. So, hopefully the man himself would approve of a little bit of promotion. I'm sure he wouldn't he wouldn't hold that against us. <laughs> <laughs> he do-
1: he does tend to um <laughs> his son Toby once wrote that um that uh Victor Newberg gave away so many books that a uh, Vine Press, original Vine Press volume without his signature in it was probably worth more than one with it. <laughs> um, so yeah, he didn't really do very well at making money, but I, uh, I hope that he, you know, he wants us to break even.
0: <laughs> Justin, that's tremendous. Thank you so much for talking to us about this.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's really fantastic to speak to you and and let me go at great length about a topic that I talk about too much.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, I'm not in rural England. I'm still in Wicklow, but hopefully you enjoyed that anyway. And I have a few bits and pieces to talk about just to end the show, mostly stuff connecting to previous episodes. So firstly, um, kicking back to, our harking back rather, to our Lost World episodes and of course I am always one to harken back to the Lost World whenever I can. Um, I recently read a paper called Room for Romance, Playing with Adventure in Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost World. This is by Ross Foreman. This is fantastic. It really talks about Arthur Conan Doyle and the Lost World in the sense that he was coming late to the genre of imperial adventure fiction, which is something we talked about back on the episode with Richard Fallon, who emphasised that point. And do you know, it's just one of those things that is so obvious but never occurred to me. I think on a personal level, The Lost World was so formative for me that it it has this kind of primordial significance to me. And, you you know, when you really... Are marked by something quite young in life, and that uh, thing always seems to have sprung into the world, fully formed you know, from the forehead of Zeus, as, as the phrase goes. And it can be difficult to see that it was, in fact, influenced by its time and place. And of course, um, Fallon and others are correct to point out that this came remarkably late in the genre, and of course, it has a lot of precursors now usually when we talk about precursors to Doyle and the Lost World we talk about um, the journey to the center of the earth and we talk about some of the short stories that are contained in in Fallon's book but this paper is interesting because it some of this is a lot more direct okay so there were there were much more direct um, examples of people writing stories specifically about dinosaurs found on a flat top plateau mountain in South America and I'm going to read a little bit out from this paper now so they write. The decision to locate the reptilian monsters on a plateau also stems from Doyle's recycling of late 19th century and early 20th century texts about Roraima, a mountain in the Paracaima or Serakong chain. An oft cited April 1877 article in The Spectator entitled Will No One Explore Roraima speculated that the Roraima Plateau might contain bizarre life forms such as dinosaurs. The American series The Frank Reed Library published two pieces in 1892, The Island in the Air, or Frank Reed Jr.'s Trip to the Tropics, a marvellous story of the Roraima Plateau, and Along the Orinoco, or with Frank Reed Jr. in Venezuela, which used the plateau as the locus for prehistoric creatures and missing links. The Devil Tree of El Dorado in 1896, by Frank Atkins, a.k.a. Frank Aubrey, features a man eating tree situated in Manoa, the mythical city of El Dorado, here located on top of Rorema. So that's pretty interesting. these are a good sort of twenty years ish before the Lost World. I'm just gonna point out that the Frank Reed stories are what's called the the Edisonads or the Edisonades who which are distinctly American I think, genre of sort of pre-pulp stories from the 1890s and so about um, usually young and gifted inventors, young boys who are gifted inventors and they, you know, kind of mimic the life and uh, popular image of Thomas Edison who, of course, was a big hero in the US at the time and they inevitably uh, end up inventing some kind of airship or other kind of Jules Vernean uh, fast-moving craft that allows them to fly around the world and have exotic and usually pretty racist and colonialist adventures it must be said but occasionally some interesting stuff does happen as well so that's my last world connection Um, going back to that episode with Richard Fallon and a lot of the kind of insights and extra bits that crept into my four Percy Fawcett episodes I also want to say thanks to Sharon Hill for pointing out recently uh, that when we spoke about the ivory built woodpecker recently she just says it, it isn't actually considered extinct. It is considered critically endangered, but also makes the point that, you know, really, it's just a matter of time. But Small detail, but one that I probably should have got right, and I do care enough to correct. Lastly, I want to say a huge thanks to Folk Horror Revival, as always, having great uh, insight, commentary, and suggestions for further reading or watching or listening in regards to episodes so in regard to the recent episode with jeb card about the witchcraft murders uh, folk horror revival says um on the influence of the murder in fiction this episode of boris karloff's thriller from 1961 was clearly directly inspired by it and the episode is called hay fork and bill hook um and folk horror revival describes this as early folk horror from 1961 um, clearly based on the murder of Charles Walton in Laura Quinton, terrifying spectral black dogs, failing crops, and rumours of human sacrifices burned in wicker baskets. Hmm. So some uh, some important uh, elements there that will become even more important in folk horror in the years to come. So that's pretty interesting. Um, I've only ever seen one episode of Boris Carlos thriller, and it is the Pigeons from Hell episode, based on the uh, short story about Robert E. Howard. And if the phrase... Robert E. Howard writing about the Deep South fills you with horror uh, and yeah, maybe maybe leave that one out for all kinds of reasons. Uh, folk Horror Revival also mentions uh, John Bowen writer of the excellent 1970 play for today Robin Redbreast has stated that he was directly inspired by Walton's murder for that too and one of the characters in the story yes uh, explicitly mentions The Golden Bow by James Fraser so tremendous great to have that and um, Robin Redbreast, frequently mentioned in lists of kind of standard important folk horror text and absolutely worth a look. So huge thanks to everybody who supported or shared recent episodes. And I'm going to start wrapping up. So as always, folks, uh, say thanks over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. If you fancy it otherwise, uh, you can spread episodes, share them, all the usual stuff or say hi over on Twitter where I'm at Strange Ireland or on Instagram where I am wide Atlantic weird no i'm not i'm irish underscore cryptid underscore dude and i have not made that mistake for a long time very embarrassing okay folks and um, as i get ready to head down the hill uh, until next time stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object
1: You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot
0: or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.